Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we are focused on what happened to Native people in California during the first three governments, the Spanish period, the Mexican period, and the American period, but focusing specifically on the American period. My guest today is Dr. Brendan Lindsay, professor of history at Sacramento State. His book, Murder State, is both haunting and important. Sometimes we need to stare into the darkness of the past. One disclaimer before we jump into today's episode, there is a strange little vibration that pops up in the audio here periodically. It only happens occasionally, but it is a little irritating. I did my best to remove it, but I am working with Zoom audio, so it is what it is. Let's go meet Dr. Lindsay. Thank you, Dr. Lindsay, for coming on. I appreciate you spending the day to talk with me. Um, We're going to be talking about pretty heavy topics today. I want to say that at the jump. Um, But they're important topics, and uh, they're topics that uh, have been overlooked, um, both in our curricula and, um, you know, in history books um, in many ways and for many reasons. But before we get into too too much of the details, um, I want to talk about uh, how genocides happen, um, because I think there is... Um, uh, some confusion about uh, the difference between kind of an emergent uh, event where there's a bunch of historical forces at work and there's not really a, a prime mover, um, someone that's directing it. And then there you have uh, genocides that happen like the Holocaust or the Armenian genocide where it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say a plan, but um, there's some direction. Um, so, can genocides be emergent, or do they need a prime mover? Uh, well, a- absolutely, they can be emergent, and I, I think more of them are are emergent, even the ones people are familiar with than one might think, and even the ones we think are are planned or or well orchestrated. Um, e- even those have uh, an element, an unplanned element to them. I think the real and maybe that's the source of the confusion. I mean, these are these are complex events. Wh- whatever rubric we want to put them under, whether it was was you know a malice of forethought, or if it was a kind of of, of tragic perfect storm that that occurred in a, in a certain historical moment. Uh, and I think what they all have as a common denominator is that there's a foundational fundamental idea or or prejudice that's pervading the majority of a population um, that that either it's present uh, whether we're talking about something that gets planned and executed or it's and it's also present in those moments of this grim opportunity that a, a, a people seizes on to commit a genocide against another people and so I mean, clearly in my research on Native American people, specifically California Indians, uh, the the hatred of Indian people uh, existed long before the California gold rush, the coming of Americans to California, the conquest of California. Uh, people in North, uh, you know, Euro-Americans in North America had been in some ways uh, distrusting and characterizing Native people as dangerous, savage, inferior, threats to their property and their personhood 
And I, I guess I should mention there that that's something that, that we could come back to over and over again if we're talking about just instances of genocide committed against Native people is it's often phrased that they're a threat to people's persons, but more often than not, it's really their property that, that people are concerned about in reality, that um, na Native people are as not as uh, violent or aggressive or bloodthirsty or any of these other stereotypical tropes that people label them with. And, and more often than not, it, it's really what's organizing their thinking about uh, committing genocide against Native peoples is this, this underlying fear that they're going to infringe my property rights or steal my cattle or my horses or any other number of things. So anyway, there's, so that, that's a Native American genocide. That idea is are always there and it's harnessed over time uh, to bring about these and to kind of give some, uh, some relief to, you know, the cognitive dissonance people have, you know, how can you kill, uh, how can you kill women and children in cold blood? How, you know, how do you, how, how does that come to pass? And so they have these, you know, familiar ideas and prejudices they could fall back on that, you know, it's kill or be killed. This was in self-defense. If not in this moment, they would have come for us eventually. And so it's kind of racism, these, uh, uh, these essentializing of people, uh, that's there. And then if you look at those instances where we think of them as planned, like the Holocaust, for instance, I mean, the history of anti-Semitism is millennia old. It dates back to, you know, before the time of Christ, people were anti-Semitic. Uh, and so th this is a, uh, thousands and thousands of years of anti-Semitism. But even in just the case of, you know, Western, Central, and Eastern Europe in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, when we're thinking about the roots of the Holocaust, the most immediate ones, um, there's that anti-Semitism that can be glommed onto and made to work. And if that was not there, it would be hard to imagine, uh, you know, obviously, literally, it couldn't be the same if it wasn't there. But yeah, there has to be something there. Uh, there's a, a great book by a scholar named Daniel Hol Goldhagen. It's called Hitler's Willing Executioners. Yeah. You don't you don't have to read the book. Yeah. To to just you hear the title and you know what that means. How do you get, you know, not all Germans to buy in, but enough Germans to buy in, and then enough others to put their head in the sand, which in genocide studies is called the ostrich problem. Which again, I don't think we need to explain the theory. It's contained in the title. People put their head in the sand. Yeah. And, so, you know. That book is pretty controversial from what I've heard, uh, obviously, is. because it's, you know, an indictment of a people. And, you know, I mean, some of the basic premises are, right, like if you're, if you're the train conductor, you know, taking the people to Dachau or wherever, like, mm -hmm. are you 
what is your ethical role in that exchange? Um, are you merely a train conductor? Um, and at what point, uh, how, how far abstracted from the actual violence do you have to be before you transition from guilty to innocent? And it's tricky. And I, you know, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, we can talk in terms of today about, you know, how, you know, our, <laughs> you know, our role as Americans in the American imperial system. But, um, you know, I, I do think what you're getting at is that there has to be an ideology there um, or the ideology is present, whether it's emergent or planned or whatever. And it's the ideology that's the fuel. Is that is that an accurate characterization? That's very accurate. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, if you think about the Holocaust, uh, I, I think in the events around the localized moments in time, there's some planning. But if you look at the whole, it's not all planned out from the start. You know, you've got Nuremberg Laws in 1935, and that, that obviously has uh, an idea of marginalizing Jews, their property and civil rights. But then you get Kristallnacht three years later. That's a very different kind of event. Uh, a year later than that is, you know, the intensified ghettoization of Jews. Um, 1940, they've got the Madagascar plan, which is, you know, obviously doesn't come to fruition because they cannot keep possession of Madagascar and, and the war goes badly for them. And in that same year, you have the, you know, by 1942, they abandoned that plan. And that's the year of the Vonsi Conference. And that's a whole nother, you know, vision and iteration which in large part has to do with the labor demands in an increasingly tough war effort where they start to think more and more of the camps as labor engines. Not that they weren't before. You know, obviously, I think Auschwitz Gates in English say, translated, say, work will set you free, uh, perversely. Uh, and so even over that time, the, the plan, if you will, is changing year by year. And so, but what doesn't change, of course, are these fundamental prejudices, uh, the fuel, as you, as you phrased it, I think, well, um, that allow this to operate e even in this, this, you know, fluctuating, e even like kind of in a disturbingly organic way, the, ge the genocide is evolving uh, in Nazi Germany during that time. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's carried out by people and, uh, you know, even in a, the most organized state, uh, you know, you, it's decentralized, you know, there's different people running camps and, and, and whatever else, but I want to jump to California now and thinking sure. about, um, you know, we've talked a lot about on this show about, you know, the way native Americans are treated in the mission system. Um, but something that's a little bit trickier to understand is how they were treated in the Mexican period preceding the American period. So what do we know at this point about uh, how Native Americans were treated in that kind of that weird 20 some odd years in between uh, Spanish control and Mexican control or Spanish control and American control? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, 1821 to 1846, uh, Mexican Alta, California, I, I think some of the I think maybe the key thing to think about is uh, Mexican Californians who called themselves Californios, uh, particularly the elite members of the society 
really kind of viewed themselves in ways that they wanted to be reminiscent, not of New Spain, which is actually where their, their most immediate ancestors came from during the Spanish mission period. Uh, and so, you know, uh, almost none of their parents had been born back in the, on the Iberian Peninsula. These are New World, uh, most of them are like mestizo people that have maybe some Indian background. Some of them have maybe some African slaves in their background. And there's kind of, you know, part of what uh, people think of as, you know, a Hispanicized or on a greater scale to include even Brazil, a Latino or Latin American population. But the Californios really want to kind of skip that heritage and they want to recall uh, the greatness of old Spain. They want to accentuate their Spanish roots. And they begin to develop a culture in terms of where landholding is concerned, that uh, you have this hierarchical, patriarchal society that's feudal, essentially, in nature. And the people tied to the land are not serfs in the traditional sense. There are California Indian people whose tribes have been located on the land grants that the Californios had obtained. And you know, going into the Mexican period, uh, approximately, I think there are only 27 private land grants in the Spanish period. All the rest were associated with the lands of the missions, the presidios, and the pueblos, and so the towns. And so only really 27 private land grants. They're mostly all retired soldiers that are just getting grants of land, uh, usually in lieu of payments that could not be made to them for back pay. And you get into the Spanish, uh, you end the Spanish period, get in the Mexican period, and eventually the secularization of the missions happens, in which time hundreds of private land grants are made. And, you know, some as small as like an acre, but some totaling up to, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres. And of course, it's these prominent elite California families that control those. And the Indian people that were uh, living on these, you know, these former mission lands get divided up when the land grants are made out of the former mission property, and they go with the land. And so they're tied to it. Uh, now, of course, California Indian people might decide let's run away. And unlike in the mission period, they wouldn't often be pursued. Uh, but where would you run to? You can't really run to the neighbor because he is the friend of the person you ran from. He'll return you. Uh, you can run into territory not controlled by Mexico directly. Um, and I, I, for listeners who don't know, uh, we, we call it Mexican California, but Mexican, Mexico only controlled 20% of the acreage, only 20 million of the 100 million acres. So when we say Mexican California, asterisk, it's Native American California, 80%. Mm -hmm. um, so we got to keep that in mind. But I, if you were to, to run- to stop you for one second, sure. you know, and that, that's, we've talked about this before on this podcast, we've talked about the, uh, in some ways, stupidity of some of the maps that we have and that were shown in, in school, which 
you know, are basically imperial maps, you know, of, of, of land that's purported to be controlled by some European power. But, you know, if you look at the maps uh, you know, of what Mexico or Spain controlled, you know, that's, it says they're controlling places where the Comanche Empire was, and they're definitely not controlling what the Comanches are controlling. And so it's, it's actually a much, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird squiggly line if you actually, you know, draw out what they controlled. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Spain had only controlled one-sixth, one out of every six acres, and Mexico got it to one-fifth. And so it, it is, and Mexico's control, quote-unquote, is really just the issuing of some of land grants to people that kind of exceed the Spanish boundaries a little bit more. Of course, I live in Sacramento, and John, John Sutter's grant, his famous grant, represents the, you know, the far, farthest northeastern land grant when he gets that in the late 1830s. And so, but, but to back to, to our point, the, uh, they, they see Indian people as useful laborers uh, inside of their territory. And for those California Indian peoples outside of those territories, uh, they see them as a threat. And uh, it, they, they don't, however, um, engage in any serious effort to go out and wipe out California Indian people. They don't make a serious effort to do much more than uh, execute raids in response to raids on Mexican land grant holders. So there are kind of, there are Mexican army troops in California, though we shouldn't really think of them as like a well-drilled standing army um, that, that can project power in very meaningful ways. But they make some expeditions in the Central Valley under famous figures like Mariano Vallejo, who uh, people pronounce it Vallejo today, the <laughs> town named after him. But yeah, if you uh, drive around LA, you're driving on city streets that have been named after all of these people. And it's oh yeah, you know, Pico and yeah, you got yeah. And so they, they, they don't do much to uh, try and, uh, uh, you know, wipe out California Indian peoples. And uh, California Indian peoples are useful to them alive. Uh, not that they're always well treated and not that uh, Californians have anyone's best interest in mind other than theirs. And that's kind of reflective of the Spanish mission system, right? Right. Uh, it, it is genocidal, particularly culturally genocidal. But uh, at, at least from the perspective of the Franciscan priests, uh, they, they want live Indian people and they don't always treat them well and certainly treat them as children and without respect. But there's no concerted effort at physical genocide, uh, even though that occurs too. Yeah. There are Spanish soldiers uh killing indians out of hand there are rapes uh that are you know preventing indian births which is an element of the definition of genocide they're spreading venereal disease which lowers birth rates uh, and they are and they're uh they're they're kidnapping children into the missions so they're separating children from their families uh, child stealing is also an element in the un's definition of genocide so they're certainly genocidal, but 
I think not in the ways we're talking about so much today, I think, with our focus, I think that's going to be on the American period of California history, yeah. which is largely physical. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Um, and I, I want to kind of talk about this in the context of the concept of lynching, um, which is something that is uh, talked about mainly um, directed towards African-Americans uh, in certain Southern states during a certain time period. Uh, do you see similarities or differences with uh, how violence was carried out in the American period uh, with this concept of lynching in mind? And what can you describe how, you know, I don't want to say describe the violence, but describe uh, what happened and what we now know from the historical record? Sure. Uh, well, look, I, I should preface it by saying one thing. I mean, when we think about lynching, uh, particularly of African Americans, uh, we, we shouldn't fall into the trap of it being a Southern thing. Uh, you know, African-Americans were lynched in other parts of the United States and in California, uh, and particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, particularly the early 20th century. And so uh, lynchings might take place anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, you're, you're right to think about the South because, I mean, that's where... I think the figure is disturbingly, I think between the end of Reconstruction and maybe World War II, maybe five, 6,000 people lynched. Um, and of course, uh, there, there is a, a museum now, a museum of lynching. Uh, and I, the, the, the state where it's located escapes me. Um, and That'd be a great person to interview as the curator yeah. of, of that museum. And uh, so, so, of course, li lynching is, just to be clear, so lynching is different from hanging. Hanging, we would use that term if somebody receives that as their sentence in a trial, some type of legal proceeding. Then, then lynching is, of course, extra legal. It's mob justice. And also, uh, it usually rep represents someone being hung by the neck till they're dead. But uh, we often these days include other types of killings as lynchings, right. like being shot to death, burned to death, beat to death. That the fact that the, the mode was different doesn't really change, you know, the, the reasons behind it, the, the outcomes. and. It's so extra having, legal is the main thing, right? It's, yeah, it's extra legal. Yeah. And so lynching in California uh, kind of has two famous aspects. During the gold rush, miners and their mining camp justice kind of famously practiced lynch law uh, for a variety of things. And any kind of relatively serious crime you might be lynched for, like, you know, stealing someone's property, a horse. Uh, even though in the actual legal code, but the penalty for uh, doing those things is not always death. And of course, you have to have a trial for it. So I feel like, sorry to interrupt, but I feel like that's yeah. been kind of mythologized a little bit. Like, you know, the places in those Western movies, there is no law, you know, and so people have to take it into their own hands. Right. You know? and, and so, but that, that there is a point to that, right? Is that if, if there's not, like who's carrying out these law? If, if there is extra legal killings, 
doesn't that assume that there's someone that could carry out legal killings in some ways? You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's, I mean, in these, uh, the mining camps and the mother loads, um, beginning in 1850 with statehood, uh, counties were established in California. All, all of those camps were contained within a county that had elected a sheriff who had a deputy or deputies that had, at least after a couple of years of setting up the infrastructure, had court systems and the ability to have jury trials. And of course, in mining camps, we have this important factor, which is the gold rush and the, the expediency uh, that it brings to the way people think. And so if we're here dealing with you, we're not in the river, we're not digging our hole, we're not hydraulicking away the hillside with a pressure hose. Uh, so they, they like the expediency. They, they have a, an idea of American exceptionalism that they have an independence. Uh, they have a connection with their forefathers who did it on their own. We don't need the government. We don't need, you know, we just need consensus or not even that. We just need a democratic majority. Uh, and of course, the way they got to California, most of them, uh, you know, a fair number came by sea, but most came over land. And they came in these companies where they democratically elected a captain to guide them. They democratically settled all the disputes in the camp over the course of the trail. And, you know, some scholars have termed it frontier democracy. And so there they are. They're in this wilderness of the gold rush. And uh, to, to be fair, they're practicing it on themselves it, it is kind of my major point. Um, of course, they're also doing it to Indians. They're doing it to Chinese immigrants. They're doing it to, uh, there are not a lot of African-Americans in the gold rush, maybe four or 500, and many of whom were brought as slaves uh, illegally into the gold fields uh, by their Southern masters, you know, to you know, uh, accentuate their, their, their digging power, if you will, or their earning power. And, uh, you know, white Californians rejected that. And it's, it's eventually drove all of them away. And, uh, but not out of any altruism for African Americans, but out of, you know, attention to their property rights and free white labor, quote unquote. And so, so yeah, these, these lynchings, I think the way it differs to get to the heart of your question is, it, it's very unlike Southern lynching because in Southern society, African Americans and white Southerners live together in that society. And they literally live together in some situations. Yeah, they're domestic servants or people of color. They have sharecroppers living on their land. Um, they are the domestic help that comes in or lives in that raise their children for wealthier people. You know what I mean? So yeah. th this is a society that is segregated uh, by race but nonetheless, at looked at as a whole, is integrated. There are whites and non-whites living together. In California, white Americans do not typically tolerate the presence of Indian people. And except in the case of 
so-called apprentices that they're able to obtain under California's apprenticeship laws, which are mainly at, aimed at adopting Indian orphans. Um, white people did not live among Indians and Indians did not live among them, except where they were like agricultural laborers on a farm. And that wasn't really a widespread practice. That was left over from the Mexican period that we already talked about. Right. And that faded out pretty quickly. So that idea of killing Indians to keep social control in the community you live in, I don't think is, is strong here in California. And that's what it's being used for, though, in the South, is to preserve white supremacy through fear and terror. Here, the lynchings are sometimes just casual. You could just read anecdotes where some white men are going along, they run across some Indians, they murder them. Uh, companies of soldiers, uh, Lieutenant George Crook, who becomes a famous Indian fighter general in the years after the Civil War, you know, against people like the Comanche you mentioned, the Apaches. Um, he just, he's on patrol, he sees some Indians, he's been sent out to suppress uh, the Indian population, and he simply just kills them. He, he has no idea what they've done, who they are, just a casual killing, if you will. And, uh, you know, because a soldier did it, is that not a lynching? You know, is he a tool of national power? On some level, yes, but on some level, you know, anything looks the same if you squint real hard, right? Yeah. So, you know, to Indian people, they don't care uh, about, you know, the, the, the powers invested in who killed their people. Uh, to them, it's, it's the killings that matter and the loss of their, you know, the vitality of their people. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I think those are the ways that are, there are some similarities and some key differences, though. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, if we look at, you know, some of the killings by famous people like Fremont um, showing up in California. And I forget the name. I shouldn't remember the name of the massacre that happened up by where you are in Sacramento. Um, there's, yeah, there's, there's Clear Lake Massacre. There's Indian Island. Yeah, Sometimes it's called Bloody, Bloody Island is another. Um, but so what you're saying, so the, the, the key difference I'm hearing is that kind of these are separate societies that are, you know, perhaps trading violent acts as they run into each other, basically, as, you know, the imperial arm of the United States expands, you know, they just keep bumping into each other. So I guess the question then is what, is there anything that unique about the, I mean, violence is horrible wherever it happens, but is there anything unique about the violence carried out against Native Americans in California compared to, you know, what we know about the Trail of Tears and the violence, you know, King Philip's War. I mean, we could talk about all these different historical moments of violence against Native people, but uh, what, if we're thinking about California history, uh, what should we know? Yeah, well, and I, I should mention, this kind of connects the last question of this one, is, you know, there are, there are cases in California where that, that more familiar Southern story of social control through lynching I mean, that, that famously takes place, like in Los Angeles in 1871, the Los Angeles massacre of Chinese people. 
uh, to, in some senses, trying to get them to stay in their lane, uh, angry about their prosperity, um, trying to keep them down on the socioeconomic ladder. Um, and there's lynchings of, like that of African-American people as well. And if we flash forward in time, you know, attacking farm workers, uh, Asian immigrants from places other than China. Um, and so it, it, it's got a, it's, it's, we have a long history of it. It's going to keep continuing. Thinking about Indian people, um, they are, and the way it's conducted, uh, what, one of the key, key questions I think about is, uh, when we're, we're thinking about uh, uh, the way people are treated here in California with violence, Native people, as compared to the experience of other Indian peoples. Um, and am I kind of restating your question correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, is, uh, is there anything unique about the Native experience in California that we should know? Yeah. Yeah. I, first and foremost, uh, there are no federal treaties between California Indian nations and the federal government. And, and not that there was not an attempt uh, in 1852, 1851, pardon me, uh, three commissioners were sent to California uh, and they were uh, directed to conclude uh, treaties that would get California Indian peoples to, to cede uh, all of their land rights except for what would be reserved for them. And uh, they made a total of 18 treaties and they delivered those back to the Senate for ratification in 1852. And the, the treaties essentially uh, we're going to let California Indian keep about 7% of their ancestral lands. Um, so maybe about roughly 7 million of California's 100 million acres. And at that time, they were probably still pretty close to, well, there's certainly over 100,000 California Indian people living throughout the state, even after a few years of the gold rush. And that was brought before the Senate, and uh, the Senate refused to ratify the treaties, even though it was the Senate, uh, speaking of Vermont, uh, our first senator, and another man, William Gwynn, our second senator, they had asked the Senate to, to demand that the executive branch conclude these treaties, because the executive takes care of the Indian affairs. And the Senate, of course, ratifies treaties with foreign nations, which is the fiction that we maintain, in a sense, when we deal with Indian people. They are only really nations in diplomacy as a matter of convenience. We never treat them with the same respect we treat uh, uh, treaties made with other peoples around the world. And instead, we call them domestic dependent nations, according to a Supreme Court decision. But in any case, uh, the, the Senate not only refuses to ratify them, they put what's called a seal of secrecy on the treaties, and they put them away in an archive for 50 years, but they don't tell the Indian people that those treaties are not in effect. And so you know, later on, when there's all kinds of white squatters living in Indian lands, and they're not getting their promised benefits, they go looking for the treaties early in the 20th century because there's actually white progressive groups trying to help 
California Indians and they find out, nope, no, no treaty protections. And instead of the government making it right, they just say, well, too bad. And think about uh, the monetary value of that amount of land. Oh, you know, I mean, there, you know, it, yeah, it's, that's, it's a whole, that's a whole legacy yeah. that, you know, we don't think about in California because, I mean, I mean, you've seen all these articles, people leaving California, it's too expensive here. <laughs> you think about the uh, consequence of that. If you're a native person uh, living in California, that the monetary value of that land, uh, even if it was, you know, because 7% is, is too small of a number, but like even at that value, it's billions of dollars probably. Yeah, and, to make, and transition to another point, you know, the, when they called the vote for ratification, uh, Gwyn stood up. And, and he said, I object. And I, I can only imagine some of the senators were like, aren't you the guy who said, let's do this? You have, but then he said, you know, th this many acres, no white man will ever respect these treaties. You might as well not even make them. And in that, it, it's, history bears him out. I, I think that would be certainly true. But anyway, so back to the heart of your question. So that's one thing. Usually in our story of Indian white relations in the United States, uh, there's a treaty there that uh, is imperfectly kind of guiding the way things are going to go. And usually to use Vine Deloria's evocative phrase, it's a trail of broken treaties. So you make it, you break it, you renegotiate it to a smaller reservation, a smaller reservation. And then the reservation's not there anymore, it's somewhere else to the West. And California is, you know, Teddy Roosevelt called it West of the West. So you can't send Indians to the West uh, except into the ocean. And in a, in a sad anecdote, they actually did propose putting all the living California Indians on Canalina Island as a reservation. Um, and, you know, in a sense, they did pit people in the ocean. They, they drowned them in their own blood rather than seawater. But, you know, they, they found a way. All the reservations, by the way, people will be familiar with in California. People know their Indian reservations. Those are created by executive order. They're not created by treaty. A so second thing. Those could be, those could be, you know, just taken away. Just, just like, you know, Joe Biden to Donald Trump, executive orders day one, those can be amended uh, with the drop of uh, a hat. Absolutely. And of course, all the existing treaties can be and have been broken at right, different right. times. But yeah, executive order, you're right, is even more fluid, even more easy to change. So that's different. Second thing is different. The gold rush happened here. And the gold rush is this horrible catalyst, and it's a wonderful catalyst. If you like the, you know, how did California get a viable population uh, of American, well, that's it. They came for the, you know, they came for one thing, they failed at it, and then they developed our state and diversified its economy, of course, but at this terrible cost. So the gold rush, you can look at other little places, you know, Trail of Tears is preceded by a gold rush, an illegal gold rush on Cherokee lands where white Georgian prospectors and other outsiders are coming in. You can look at the Dakotas and the gold strikes there 
that kind of predicate some of the massacres that occur there, um, and, and so on. And so gold and silver strikes, for that matter, uh, ha have caused these things. But California is, I think, unique because the scale is unparalleled, uh, at least in US history. And then lastly, we have to remember all, most of the, the killing, the genocide occurs in, in the gold rush era, uh, which, which is probably 1848 to 1858, generously to 1860. And, um, you know, well before the Transcontinental Railroad uh, in 1869, even before the Transcontinental Telegraph in the mid 1860s. So California is an island and it's isolated, it's far away. It takes a long time for news to come back and forth. The federal government has trouble uh, having any kind of tight control over California, at least in its role as the federal government. And so California is really freed from constraints. And the, the federal agents that are here, particularly those in Indian affairs, are notoriously corrupt people. But if you know the history of Indian affairs in our country, that describes most Indian agents, most reservation agents um, who are, you know, taking kickbacks, paying out in liquor, even though that's illegal. They are exploiting Indian people's labor for their own benefit. And all of those things happen in California. But anyway, I think those are the three things that I would highlight that, that made the treatment of Indian people here so different. And if it doesn't, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I know you're wrapping no. up. I was just, I, you know, I'm, I'm staring at my bookcase right now across the room and I'm seeing, uh, and this, this question just popped into my head because I'm curious. Um, what, do you, what do you think about Kevin Starr's treatment of this stuff? He's kind of, you know, if, if there's a California history books that have been written, Kevin Starr's are kind of the Bibles. Um, does, he, does he cover this subject well, do you think? Or? Uh, you know, he, yes and no. I, I, he doesn't cover it deeply enough. Uh, so he doesn't take deep dives into it. And, and some of that is a function of his training, which, which doesn't excuse him from doing a good job. But I think just to explain, of course, and we should say the late Kevin Starr. Yeah. Uh, um, it doesn't excuse him, but it kind of explains the way he wrote. He, he was trained in American studies uh, at Harvard. Uh, he is a, a great lover of literature. He was a, obviously our state librarian for many years uh, and had a degree in library science as well, I believe, an MLS maybe. Uh, and I think his love of the culture of California, its literature, uh, its film, and its art uh, kind of really caused him to have a, a focus sometimes not as intense as it should have been. However, he does, um, uh, he does, I don't know if you've seen his little small book, California, A History. Yeah. And, and, and that, that is often what I use in my introductory California history classes, precisely for the reason that it isn't too deep a dive 
into almost anything. And he does say it's a genocide. He does, he does mention the violence. And, and also, he talks about those things directed at other, other communities of color as well. Yeah. So he's not insensible to it. Um, it I, I had on a couple of occasions had the chance to hear him speak. And it, in moments where he could uh, sit there and talk more deeply about these histories, tremendously knowledgeable and was well aware of the literature. And so, but yeah, I, 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 think, I think his loves lied elsewhere. And, and so it, it shaped the way he wrote. Yeah. But, um, and, and also I have to give him credit. There's a four book published series by the University of California that are were really bound up copies of articles that were published in the journal California History for the sesquicentennial uh, of California statehood. And they have titles like uh, Contested Eden, Rooted in Barbarous Soil, uh, Taming the Elephant, and it's going to kill me. I can't remember the fourth one. But in any case, um, he was, he edited uh, one of those and did a wonderful job. And they put together really um, what's the true Bible. If you want to learn California history from pre-contact through the gold rush, at least, uh, listeners should check those out. And people with access to uh, databases like JSTOR, for instance, you could just get the articles that are in them for free by just searching out the, the pieces that were put together. Uh, and in those books, he brought together people talking really um, specifically, deeply, and intelligently about some of the atrocities committed against Indian people. So th that's the way I kind of view him is um, he could have done a better job but he didn't ignore it altogether. Right. That makes sense. I mean, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do. I mean, I think the, his, his one standalone volume is something like 320 pages or something, you know, the one you use for your classes, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. quite small and there's, a, you know, and you, you can never shame someone for like, obviously they're not going to write some thousand pages. Um, you know, that's not going to sell well. Um, yeah. So, I want to, but I, I brought up that question to kind of lead us to a legacy question, which is um, thinking about how these periods of violence should shape our understanding of California. You know, I'm I'm big on thinking about, you know, what does history tell us, but then how how should that shape how we see things um, today? Um, so, from your perspective, how how do these early periods of violence shape our understanding of California history? Well, I mean, what, one thing that comes to mind is uh, uh, when I think about what I do, uh, I'm always mindful of, uh, I live right now in Elk Grove, California, which is just south of Sacramento, where I work at Sacramento State. And I, I live on stolen land. Uh, I live on the land of the, the Nisanan people and more widely the the Valley Miwok, the Maidu people, um, and in adjacent areas, uh, other groups. And people who live in California, that's one thing that 
should shape their understanding. We, we live on unseated, stolen ground. And the fact that it's been transferred over time to later people uh, doesn't make it less stolen. Even in our own legal system, if you steal property and you transfer it to someone else, it's still stolen property. Right. Um, and, you know, it, so we, we should think of it that way. Uh, there, and we should think of it especially when issues of restorative justice are discussed in California. And, and it could be anything. There, every so often there is an initiative or a referendum on the ballot to do with Indian gaming. And I hear people talking about those, those potential pieces of legislation um, with really no historical context. And, and they'll talk about them. I, I remember when it, I mean, really first started out in uh, the 80s uh, with the Cabazon Indian Reservation and slot machines and county sheriffs seizing their gaming equipment. and you know, it, it, California has played a really important role for Indian people all over in North America who want gaming. But people don't contextualize it historically. And they, you know, well, why should we give them this? Why should they have these special privileges? And it, um, I was at a dinner once in Palm Springs where people sitting near me were mad about how Indian reservations didn't have to charge the federal tax on gas or cigarettes. And how dare they fly their own flag? And there's not like, they, they had no understanding of what was lost. And it was all about as if it was charity in some way after California Indian people had given literally their lives and their land, which I would argue, by the way, are the same thing. Uh, particularly spiritually, uh, and they've been doing that for generations. And then, of course, uh, in, in today's world, to get to my second point, when you think about, we mentioned this uh, maybe before we came on the actual podcast, thinking about curriculum. When we erase this genocide, when we silence it, we become complicit in it in, in, a, in a modern, contemporary way. We are perpetuating uh, the silence of these people and their culture, and particularly when people actively work against restorative justice for Indians, um, because Indian communities are just trying to get some of their land back. They're trying to recover their languages, which were stripped for them through boarding schools, day schools, breaking them apart into urban populations and some reservation populations. And by the way, that creates tensions among Indian people that are so sad and unfortunate. There's city Indians and reservation Indians, and there's, there's tensions there, not, not born of the action of Native people, but born of the actions of, of white Americans, uh, dating all the way back to this period. And then the last one, and I think this is a lesson of history in general. There is no such thing as the good old days. Uh, if, if you know history, you don't want to live in the past. The, the best time, the freest time, not tension-free, but the, the best days for the most Americans are probably right now. 
because you can go back a decade, just a decade, horrific for LGBTQ populations. 20, 30 years, women, uh, even with the vote, still, you know, and we're still dealing with problems. Uh, of course, back to the 1960s, Black Freedom Movement, uh, and progress has been made on all of these things. And so things are better and they're way better than before. So, you know, a lot of students say, oh, I wish I could have been alive during the Civil War. And I asked this like, <laughs> did, did you want to be a slave? Well, I, I, mean, I wouldn't want to be a slave. Do you want to be a slave owner? Well, no, that's immoral. Uh, well, do you want to be one of these um, horrifically mistreated factory workers in the North? Uh, well, no, not them either. Uh, do you want to be one of the factory owners that's sucking the life? And we get down to it. And it's like, wow, I, I guess there's really, it's not so good, you know? So yeah. uh, I think a good general lesson. Yeah, it's it's such a, you know, it's such a, a complicated thing because we're all walking, you know, I describe it um, like, uh, you know, there's, there's blood on the ground and we're just walking around. It's on the bottom of our shoes and we're tracking it into our house and tracking it into our churches and tracking it into our schools. Um, and it's just, there's bloody footprints everywhere. And I think, you know, one of the things that people can do, obviously, and this is a good place to start, you know, sometimes it's, it's better to start with fiction than, than nonfiction, you know, like reading, for example, uh, Tommy Orange's book, uh, there, there, um, a, about his, you know, uh, and it's, 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 I think literature and, uh, you know, maybe film can provide kind of a perspective that helps, mm -hmm. you know, these kind of dryish stuff that we're talking about come to life. Um, but, you know, I think what you're saying about the history, about history, you not want to go back into history. I think that is a challenge to both liberals and conservatives in that conservatives pretend, you know, America was great at some point, um, and liberals, you know, the world is collapsing around us. Well, that might be true, but it, it, if this is collapsing, you know, and you lived in Jim Crow South, I'm not sure what you would, what you would think was happening. And so I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's the, it, it's the whole like democracy is the worst form, but better than all the rest. You know, the future is the best we have so far, you know, even though it's, still not the best you know what i mean so i i think it i think it's an important um uh statement for people to ingrain in themselves and you know i want to finish with books um so you mentioned uh those series of articles but what are some what are some important books for you that really helped you to understand california history yeah you know i was uh thinking about that uh there, there are so many, but I, I'm going to, I'll mention three that uh, the first two are, I think, foundational. I, I read these, I read these when I was, uh, both of them when I was uh, an undergraduate. So a couple decades or more ago. And um, one is Albert Hurtado's Sex, Gender, and Culture in Old California. and it, I, I can't recommend this book highly enough. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, it, it's venerable now. It's it's uh, over twenty years old, but it, it stood the test of time. Uh, it it is still a, a popular choice 
in California history classrooms at the university level. It, it's also one of the best written books you will, you will ever read. It has this fantastic economy of style. And uh, uh, Albert Hurtado, I, I didn't know this when I read it, and I didn't realize it even when I came to Sac State, but he's actually an uh, alum of our undergraduate program. And he went on to get a PhD, uh, became a, a tremendously well-recognized historian, and uh, is emeritus now and retired, but has authored many great books. I'd recommend any book he's written. But Sex, Gender, and Culture in Old California talks about race, class, and gender, marital status, and how they shape identity and experience in the Spanish, Mexican, and early American California periods. So it just, it's fascinating. And he's also, I think, has one of the best, most concise explanations of gender as a category of historical analysis, explained in layman's terms without sacrificing any of the complexity. Um, James Rawls um, wrote a book called Indians of California, The Changing Image. And uh, what Rawls did in that is he makes an argument that each Euro-American Euro invading population that came here um, changed uh, the, the image of the native people to suit their needs and their, the way of conceiving of them. So the Spanish thought of them as man after the fall, like Adam and Eve that must be saved from themselves uh, or saved from you know, the influence of the devil. Uh, and there had been some of that, of course, in Spanish conquest of the new world, right? The cross and the sword advance together, join us or die, Christianize or die. And it's not quite that extreme here. Uh, it, it's more proselytizing, Christianizing, uh, you know, some voluntary people in the missions, some forced into the missions. But anyway, uh, Mexicans uh, come along, take over. I, I should mention, you know, Mexicans one night in 1820, Spanish one night in 1829, wake up the next day, you're Mexican. So those are national terms, not ethnic ones. And uh, like we already said, they're useful laborers tied to the land on these kind of, you know, fiefdoms. And then the U.S., if we control them on a farm, they're useful. If they're not under control, they should be exterminated immediately. So, uh, so that was his thesis. And that certainly was the first time I ever thought about California Indian genocide was in my California history class at Cal Poly Pomona uh, uh, back in the back in the nineties. Which so, I mean, we might as well bring it up now and something that we're talking about, and I, you know, plan to write and think more about, um, which is you know, California history just isn't developmentally in the right uh, grade level uh, for a lot of these uh, topics and the content that it's dealing with. You know, at nine years old. It's not the right time to process through these. I mean, it's not, you know, and I, I teach eighth grade history. Is it the right time to be learning about slavery at 13? You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe there's certain things we can do, but, um, you know, certainly doing a mission project as a nine-year-old, uh, I don't think anyone 
with their head on their shoulders would agree that that's a good time to be doing that. But yeah, or at least not an accurate one. I mean, to, yeah. to your point, it's better not to teach them anything at all than to teach the sugar coating. And I'll give you a, an example. I have an entrance survey and an exit survey in my intro to US history course at Sac State. I do it every semester for years. And it, it tests their kind of, it just without any, any preparation, they've not heard a lecture, looked at a book, just here's some questions. Some are fact-based, some are opinions, agree, disagree, slightly agree, uh, these different things. And one of the questions to give you an example is, um, the Emancipation Proclamation freed all the slaves in the United States. 80% of students believe that statement is true. At the exit survey, I've done a lecture, I've showed a documentary film, we've done a written exercise, uh, we've had quizzes on it with readings about it. At the exit, 76% still believe it. So that, that children absorb and it stays. And when they hear counter narratives as an adult, and in this case, the true narrative, it's the 13th Amendment that does it. And the Emancipation Proclamation, African-American people certainly see it as we're all going to be free, but it's a military strategy. Strip Southerners of their property when it gets captured, but the border states, they're not free. In places where there are Union troops already, not free. Um, and so, and yet, if there it is. So, you know, speaking as a someone at university level, I'd rather just tell them for the first time if I have to, rather than, I mean, I have to tell you, Students literally, are you sure? They literally doubt me. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm not so grand as to think, you know, my PhD means I'm all knowing, but that, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big statement for you to make just casually. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, just no breakthrough. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I, I still remember th learning about the mission system in, 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 you know, kind of bits and fragments, but, you know, the basic understanding that I walked away with that I carried with me to my, you know, California public university where I learned history was, well, the mission system is kind of this nice little uh, uh, society where people work together and, uh, you know, the native people happily walked out and carried the food in on their, their heads, you know, and uh, it, and I think that's that's true in so many ways. What you start with and what forms you early is what it sticks with you, you know. And I'm married to a psychologist, so that's I I know I know the I know the veracity of that claim beyond just in the classroom. It's what what happens early sticks with us. And so I think you're right. I think it's a challenge, right? Because we we got you know how do you at, at what age do you start teaching them history, you know? Um, and what do you teach? Um, and that's a tricky question we're not going to solve right now, but let's go to the third book um, that yeah. you'd recommend. And, and you know, and, that, and this kind of dovetails nicely because it's another, it's a, it's another monograph that's dispelling a myth or, or what all these books do or what a real deep dive in the history always shows us it's, it's complex and it's important. We problematize history. It's important that we complexify it. There is no black and white. There's no, you know, easy answers ever. No single causes. 
right. of anything, except maybe the Civil War, which is the root causes, certainly slavery. Can't imagine having the war without it. Right, uh, right. And so, but other than that, uh, I'm, I was thinking of Erica Lee and, and Judy Young. Erica Lee and Judy Young wrote a book called Angel Island, uh, Immigrant Gateway. And it, it, and it's about, of course, Angel Island. By the way, in, in California history classes, these are students that live in Sacramento. I'm like, start to talk about Angel Island. They're like, what's Angel Island? Like, <laughs> wow, you, you've, have you been to San Francisco? Yeah. Have you been to the Bay? Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of the main islands in the Bay. Oh, I know Alcatraz. All right. Everyone knows Alcatraz. So, um, you know, or I know Treasure Island, that kind of little, you know, tiny. But anyway, yes. Uh, so uh, for, for many Californians, even in proximity, Angel Island is kind of a mystery. But those who do know it say, oh, it's, it's Ellis Island of the West. And, you know, there's some veracity to that claim. But, of course, the, the demographic of the immigrants are totally different. And uh, I remember, and it's a more recent book, and it has some fabulous new material in it. Uh, you know, people have taken a look at, like, um, the Chinese character poetry called, carved into the cells of the immigration station there and what are the themes of the poems and you know using that as primary evidence you know interesting things like that wow. in some of the work of recent scholars but this one it's all about dispelling this myth of a dis uh, of a homogenous asian immigrant experience and you know i think californians have some idea of the chinese immigrant experience maybe a little to do with the railroad, maybe some to do with Chinese exclusion, not much else. And then they know there were Japanese and Japanese Americans because of World War II internment, but they don't really know about the immigration process. And then they don't also realize that, you know, this is the gateway of Asian immigration. So the book has chapters on Koreans, people from South Asia, like Sikh people coming from India, Filipinos, um, even East Asia in terms of Russians and Russian Jews would come through Angel Island as well. And the different ways those origins shaped the actual experience you had. And, and it was an eye opener for me. I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm reading about, you know, the group that had the smoothest time getting in was Koreans. And I, well, why in the world Koreans? And that's because there was a strong tradition of Christianity in Korea and Korean, there were Korean churches here and Korean church groups went and got the people coming from Korea and helped them legally and also attested to, look, this person is not gonna be what they used to call a public charge like a burden, a, a welfare burden on a community. They have somewhere to live. They're joining families. They're gonna work in my store, my farm. And so I, I learned this whole history and then other valuable histories. There's Sikh communities here in Elk Grove and then also in the Central Valley. And I, I understood that sadly from 9-11 when people were, uh, committing violence and even murdering some Sikh people 
here in California, burning down Sikh temples. Every now and again, some white supremacists still vandalize them as recently as earlier this year. Which is uh, so ironic if you understand the politics of that area and yes. partition and Pakistan. It's, it's just the, you know, oh God, you know, the oh. level of illiteracy on these topics is, it's, it, it's hard to wrap my brain around sometimes and just frustrates me to no end. But yeah. So, yeah, so I want to mention uh, Lee and Young's book, Angel Island, just because, just to indicate, I, the reason I love doing what I do is I get to be a lifelong student. And these two scholars, uh, they taught me something tremendously valuable that's in my course materials and course work for my students. My grad students are reading this book when I offer a reading seminar at the grad level. And they're also reading Hurtado for that matter as well. But uh, uh, it's really something recent that shaped me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I hadn't heard of it. And that's, it's, it's going in my, uh, sadly, I'm going to say this word, it's going in my Amazon cart probably as soon as this is over, but that's what it is these days. Um, so what are, uh, to close up, what are you working on these days? Do you have any books in the works or articles you're researching? Just stuff you want to share that as, uh, obviously we should mention your book as well, uh, on this topic that we're talking about today. Yeah, I, I am thinking of, uh, I'm working on some follow-ups to Murder State, which is my book from, uh, came out in hardcover 2012, so it's pretty venerable now, and uh, came out later in paperback and on Audible, speaking of Amazon. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, I, uh, I have a couple of projects I'm working on uh, that's been hampered by pandemic, of course. Yeah, and also I'm I'm battling cancer over the last few years. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. So that oh, that, I I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's a battle I'm I'm winning. Knock on wood. I got a stem cell, two stem cell transplants, and really the battle now more is to those come with a lot of complications and not just being immune suppressed, uh, but purposely so. So as you can imagine, I cannot go on that. I don't have an immune system. I can't go into the world and I'm not, I can't get a vaccine because of how they trigger immune responses might kick my transplant out in the process. So it's going to be complex, but having said that, I'm really, I'm digging deeper into the period after 1873, which is kind of the, when the genocide here in California became cultural, it became more oblique and indirect and it's, physical forms as well. And I'm really interested in the experience of California Indian children who were being kidnapped and held as wards. And and the claim was that white families were going to civilize them, teach them English. But the reality is they're they're servants in homes and on farms. And uh, it's tough to get at because the the voice of these children and their experience, they were kept, uh, you know, California Indian people didn't have written forms of their language in the 19th century, so they don't leave a written record in that moment. And then, of course, you know, these Indian children were not all wiped out. They eventually grew up, they exited those white households, but many of them, I don't think, became literate. So uh, you have to really find other ways to get at the story, like government documents. I'm looking at uh, 
school marshal reports because uh, they didn't let the Indian children go to school, but the law said you had to keep track of how many there were living with white families off reservations. So I was able to find some data. So I'm doing that. And, uh, and I'm the California historian for Sac State. Uh, so I also do kind of non-genocide, non-native projects. And so I'm looking at early 1850s land policies, state formation, and uh, which does affect Indian people, of course. So that's just a couple of things I'm working on. Well, that's awesome. And I, you know, those topics today are kind of fresh in my mind in a lot of ways because I, um, I live in Fresno and uh, we have a, a local poet uh, that was up for the National Book Award in Poetry, Anthony Cody, whose books, book Borderland Apocrypha kind of talks about some of the topics uh, that we're, we were referencing today. Um, it's a really, and it's, it does it in a very creative way. I'm not sure if you've uh, had a chance to look at that, but it's a, such a cool re like representation of this. Yeah, I'll have to check. I, every three years I teach a course called California Dreamin'. And it's um, the, the arts and the California dream and the shaping and formation of our identity. Students are always stunned, by the way, to find out that the southern San Joaquin Valley is the poetry capital of the West. That they have no idea about that. Not the vi vibrant university programs, the community of poets that live there. Yep. And then... Yep. Just in general, the Central Valley has produced, you know, great kind of poets and reflective writers, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, even essayists like Joan Didion uh, mm -hmm. for all her kind of elite status. Yeah, we just, we, we just had Gary Young on and talked about all of that world and Philip Levine and Larry Levis and all of these great poets that have come out of the mm -hmm. Central Valley are. Yeah, that would that would be I would I would audit that course to to hang out with all of those poets. So, well, it's thanks fine. for coming on, Brendan. I really appreciate it, and uh, good luck with everything uh, with your treatment and uh, in our thoughts. And uh, I really appreciate you talking with me today. All right, hey, thanks, Jordan. I appreciate you doing this podcast too. All right, that's it for us today, folks. Thanks for listening. Apologies again for the weird audio. I've addressed the issue and figured out the source, so it shouldn't happen again. Hopefully this episode was still enjoyable, even with that little malfunction in the audio. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be getting into the American period in California history. I'm excited to start it with you and looking forward to exploring more of the history of California.